It's 6 o'clock on the dot, and welcome to WORT's local news for Thursday, September 14th. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. And I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. In tonight's news, today state state Republicans voted to reject Megan Wolf's reappointment as Wisconsin's top election administrator. Planned Parenthood announced it will resume abortion services in Madison and Milwaukee. A county board supervisor clarifies what's going on behind the scenes as they established a new department to reduce racial disparities in the justice system. And the state Supreme Court may change how long eviction records are stored. This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. A series of, a series of bills to ease the child care shortage in Wisconsin passed the Republican-controlled state assembly today on a largely party-line vote. The bills include a plan to enable parents or guardians of children under 13 to create state tax-exempt savings accounts for child care costs, a proposal to create an interest-free revolving loan program for child care centers, a bill that would increase the maximum number of children allowed in a child care center, and a bill that would lower the minimum age for a child care assistant from 17 to 16. The entire package faces a likely veto from Governor Tony Evers, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Evers spokesman Britt Cutterback categorized the bills as, quote, legislation that could reduce the quality of care for our kids. Senate Republicans voted today to override multiple vetoes by Governor Tony Evers. One veto was intended to keep increased school funding by providing an additional $325 per student until the year 24-25. A second veto would have removed a $3.5 billion tax cut to the wealthiest Wisconsinites. And another would have barred state and local governments from restricting utility services based on the energy source. A successful successful veto override requires a two-thirds majority in the state Senate and the state Assembly. The Wisconsin State Journal reported that all three voting sessions passed along party lines in the Senate. But if the Assembly votes as the Senate did along party lines, then the veto overrides won't take effect. However, the GOP lawmakers don't hold a two-thirds majority in the Assembly. The Wisconsin Budget Committee has approved several environmental lawsuit settlements. $1.5 million will go to the state's general fund as compensation for a range of issues. Didion Mining and Didion Ethanol settled multiple alleged allegations that they failed to inspect pumps for volatile organic compound leaks and other violations. Ellsworth Cooperative Creamery was accused of breaching the state's pollution discharge elimination system permit. $90,000 would go to replace fish that were killed. Stahl Brothers Dairy allegedly broke terms of its state permit by exceeding the margin of safety in a waste storage facility, along with other failures. Reporting from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reveals that Northside Genetics, Harmon Will Drilling and Pump, and Musan Brothers Incorporated also face penalties ranging from $15,000 to $80,000. A new COVID booster shot is available this fall for everyone six months old and older. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention director recommends that everyone who qualifies should get this updated vaccine. 
the costs of the shots will no longer be covered by the federal government, but officials say they will still be free for the vast majority of Americans who are covered by private or public health care plans. WMTV reports that the vaccines should be widely available by the end of this week. Today, nurses accuse UW Health of not living up to the spirit of an agreement signed last year to avert a strike. Nurses negotiated a meet and discuss process last September that they say wage caps and understaffing still persists. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that UW Health spokesperson Emily Green Donner says that the health system has added 250 frontline nurses and its turnover rate has dropped. Nurse Mary Jorgensen says some nurses have to work 16-hour shifts or 14 days in a row to keep up with the system's needs. UW Health has refused to recognize the revived nurses union since 2019. They say under Act 10, a 2011 state law that banned most collective bargaining for public employees prohibits the hospital from collective bargaining because UW hospitals are state entities. University of Wisconsin system school enrollment is projected to stay steady this fall. The system anticipates an additional 540 students this fall, an increase of about 0.3%. Some schools, like UW-Madison, are projected to have slightly reduced enrollment. The stable incoming class is a small lifeline for the system, which has faced state aid cuts. Currently, UW-Madison and UW-Stout are the only two system schools that are expected to be without a deficit next year. The U.S. Navy decommissioned the combat ship USSS Milwaukee this month after the Navy announced last year its plans to mothball a number of the Wisconsin-built Freedom-class vessels. The Freedom-class ships were intended to serve quick response roles in rapidly changing combat environments. Instead, they were criticized as undergunned and prone to breakdowns. The 10-year-old Milwaukee and other Freedom-class ships built by Lockheed Martin and Marionette cost about $500 million each to design and build, the Milwaukee State Journal reports. In 2022, the Navy proposed decommissioning all nine of the Freedom-class ships in active service, but Congress limited that proposal to in its 2023 Defense Authorization Act to no more than four of the ships, according to DefenseOne.com. And a program in Madison that sends specialists from outside the police department to address behavioral health emergencies will expand to cover weekends, according to the Capital Times. The Community Alternate Response Emergency Services Program has responded to 3,200 calls for service since its launch in September, on September 1st, 2021. And now on to today's top stories. After months of partisan posturing, the state Senate voted to reject Megan Wolf's reappointment as Wisconsin election administrator. Tensions were high, with Democratic lawmakers accusing their Republican colleagues of wrongdoing and spectators in the gallery applauding when the vote was finalized. WORT News producer Faye Parks has the story. The state Senate voted today, along party lines, against the reappointment of Wisconsin's top elections administrator. Megan Wolf's position has been the subject of partisan wrangling since her term ended earlier this summer. This, after election deniers criticized the voting systems she implemented, such as mailing absentee ballots, to keep the 2020 presidential election running smoothly during the pandemic. The elections administrator acts as a resource for local clerks and is an overseer of compliance with state and federal law. 
The administrator reports the Bipartisan Wisconsin Elections Commission, which has three liberal and three conservative commissioners. The liberal commissioners went so far as to abstain from the vote in June to move forward with Wolf's reappointment process. They argued that the end of her term did not signify a vacancy and she should not be subject to another confirmation process. As precedent, they pointed to Fred Prane's extended term heading the state's Department of Natural Resources. However, the state Senate interpreted the three votes by the commission's conservative members as approval to send Wolf's appointment to the floor, which they carried out today. Before the vote, state Democrats argued that it should not happen at all. Senator Mark Spritzer of Beloit says, There is no nomination before the Senate, and there is no vacancy in the position of administrator of the Wisconsin Elections Commission. In spite of these protests, the Senate rejected Wolf's reappointment in a 22 to 11 vote, with thunderous applause from the gallery. After the vote, Senator Melissa Agard of Madison harshly criticized her conservative colleagues. She says, Let the people of Wisconsin hear this loud and clear. The legislative Republican majority will stop at nothing to retain their power here in the Capitol building. They'll lie, they'll cheat, and they'll steal in order to make that happen. And it's come to the point where it's no longer sneaky or clever or even nuanced. You're just saying it loud in the open. Don't like the administrator of the Elections Commission? Didn't buy into the big lie? Kick her out. This afternoon, Wolf held a virtual press conference to discuss the Senate's rejection. She made a point to emphasize that her role is nonpartisan, and that's how she's always carried out her work. She says, The Senate's vote today to remove me is not a referendum on the job I do but rather a reaction to not achieving the political outcome they desire. Additionally, she says that she will continue to work as the administrator moving forward. After rejecting Wolf, the Senate also voted to call on the Elections Commission to appoint a new administrator. Meanwhile, Attorney General Josh Call announced a lawsuit this afternoon, saying that Wolf's choice to remain in the position is lawful. Election observers have previously expressed concerns that, should conflicts surrounding the administrator not be resolved before the next presidential race, there will be a renewed influx of conspiracy theories and challenges to the results. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin announced this morning that it will resume providing abortion services in the state as of Monday, September 18th. The decision comes after a Dane County judge ruled in July that an 1849 law that bans feticide does not apply to consensual medical abortions. Reporter Sarah Gabler has more. Starting next Monday, pregnant people in Wisconsin will no longer have to leave the state to receive abortion care. Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin announced just this morning that it will resume offering abortion services at its Madison Eastside Health Center and its Milwaukee Water Street Health Center. When the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year, an 1849 ban on abortions was triggered in Wisconsin. In a press release this morning, Tanya Atkinson, president of Planned Parenthood Wisconsin, described what happened in Wisconsin after the Dobbs ruling. When Roe was overturned, Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin made the agonizing decision to suspend abortion services in order to protect the physicians and staff who care for patients and communities, to protect those providers from the threat of being prosecuted under an archaic Wisconsin law criminalizing abortion care. But now, Planned Parenthood Wisconsin is resuming abortion services. 
The move follows a July 7th ruling and a suit brought to the Dane County Circuit Court by Attorney General Josh Call last year. In the ruling, Dane County Judge Diane Schlipper found that the 1849 law does not apply to consensual medical abortions, but to feticide. She also cited a 1994 Wisconsin Supreme Court decision, State v. Black, in which a pregnant woman was attacked and her unborn child died as a result. In a press conference this morning, Michelle Velasquez, Planned Parenthood's Director of Legal Advocacy and Services, said that Judge Schlipper's ruling gives Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin the legal support to resume offering abortion care. Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin has maintained since the Dobbs decision that Wisconsin Statute 940.04, which has been commonly referred to as the 1849 criminal abortion ban, was not enforceable and did not automatically spring back to life when the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last summer. Being able to provide abortion care is crucial to providing the full spectrum of reproductive health care, attest Atkinson. But when Planned Parenthood Wisconsin resumes abortion services next week, it will do so under the same restrictions in place before the overturning of Roe last summer. Planned Parenthood Wisconsin's Associate Medical Director, Dr. Allison Linton, describes some of these restrictions. Prior to the Dobbs ruling, so that includes a variety of restrictions, including a 24-hour waiting period, a 20-week ban that's written by um, post-conceptions. There's a parental um, consent law. There's a mandatory ultrasound law. There are also restrictions for patients seeking medical abortion in Wisconsin. So Wisconsin law requires um, that the same physician see a patient um, over the course of two visits to provide medication abortion services. Um, the, the law also requires that, that those visits both be in person and that the physician be present when the medication is dispensed. Wisconsin law also prohibits telemedicine, direct-to-patient mailing, and restricts patients from receiving medication directly from a pharmacy. Planned Parenthood Wisconsin is the only abortion service provider in the state that offers abortions for reasons other than to protect the life of the pregnant person, says Velasquez. For Planned Parenthood representatives, these restrictions mean that there is a long path ahead to expanding access to abortion in the state. Since Planned Parenthood Wisconsin's announcement this morning, there has been an outpouring of support from Democrats and outrage from Republicans. Representative Lisa Subek, a Madison Democrat, praises Planned Parenthood Wisconsin, saying, This restores the ability of patients, in consultation with their physicians, to make their own decisions when facing an unintended or untenable pregnancy. Despite the partisan responses, Atkinson insists that Planned Parenthood Wisconsin's decision is not politically motivated. This is a medical decision, not a political decision. The people of Wisconsin you know, could not wait any longer. We, um, again, really confident in the analysis um, of the ability to continue uh, to uh, resume, excuse me, resume providing abortion care. So um, so this is a healthcare decision uh, based on the needs of our state, not a political decision. Abortion services will be available in Planned Parenthood's Madison and Milwaukee clinics, but not yet in the Sheboygan Clinic, where staffing and logistical concerns are still being sorted out. Appointments are already open and can be made online or over the phone, and care will resume as of Monday the 18th. For WORT News, I'm Sarah Gabler.
It's now 6.21 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Dane County's 2023 budget set aside funding to establish a new Department of Justice reform in hopes of addressing racial disparities and disproportionate incarcerations. It's just getting off the ground now, in part held back because officials haven't agreed on who should be the interim head. County Executive Joe Parisi recommended former Dane County Sheriff Dave Mahoney for the position, but his recommendation would require approval from the county board, approval he did not obtain. WRT News producer Faye Parks spoke with Supervisor Rick Rose of Madison's East Side, who gave more details on the county's approval process. He and several of his colleagues say that an ideal candidate should not come with a background in law enforcement, as that's the system they're looking to reform. Thank you for joining me, Supervisor Rose. My pleasure, as always. To start, can you outline the responsibilities and goals associated with the new Department of Justice reform? Why was it created? Yeah, it was actually, um, you know, listening to people's needs. And we knew this conversation about criminal justice in our county was going on simultaneous to the, the need to build a new jail. And so that process has been going on for over 10 years. With our current board, as uh, many people know, we moved forward with the building of the new jail but with the intention that we focus also on the second piece, which is criminal justice reform. So we're building a smaller jail. How do we prevent getting bigger numbers in? Number one, you know, having more residents is not our goal. To uh, prevent that is our goal. And then second of all, also look at the disparity in the Dane County system compared to the country. We have a higher rate of incarceration for black men, for instance. So this department was created to kind of simultaneously work on those issues together. If we're building a new jail, let's make sure the jail is to size and let's make sure we do those things that are important, which is reforming the justice system. So it was in Precy's budget for 2023 to start this new department, which would be staffed by someone leading it. And I believe six or seven other staff members under that, including things like community court, which would be a different approach to the way we do our current court system. So the conversation's been going on some time. What is the role of the interim head? How long would they occupy that position? This position that was proposed really comes out of the fact that they had an open position to be the director. Forty candidates, from my understanding, did apply for that position. The executive's office decided not to move forward with any of those candidates at at that time, but knew that in order specific to get the community court going, for instance, was one of the first tasks of the community justice department. So while we were getting a space ready, while we were getting furniture ready in the provunctory parts of setting up that department, we knew it needed a head, but the head really wasn't needed until the grant that we have to create this community court system was requiring a leader. And in order to hire a leader of that criminal court system, we knew we needed to have a leader for the department. And because uh, Precy signified to us that he could not find a candidate, he decided to suggest a temporary placement, like around six months to eight months to at least get it started while they continue their recruitment process to hire a permanent person uh, as department head. Parisi recommended former Dane County Sheriff Dave Mahoney. What qualifications did Parisi reference to support that recommendation? 
the way county government works in Dane County specifically is we have committees that give their recommendation to the larger board of supervisors. So every two weeks when the 37 members of the board vote on something, it's at the recommendation of a committee. And in this case, obviously, it was PPJ and then personnel and finance. So those qualifications of Mahoney would have been important to look at from a personnel finance perspective, but also from a public protection and justice part. When we were given Mahoney's name, you know, there really isn't any information specifically about why they think this person should be put forward. What happens instead is former Sheriff Mahoney showed up at the PB&J meeting where we were hearing this to create our recommendation to pass on to the greater board, and we asked him questions about his qualifications. I made the recommendation at the PP&J hearing where Mahoney was in front of us, and that recommendation was to permanently postpone this confirmation, which meant it did not go to the greater body for vote for at least 45 days. It has to sit quiet for 45 days. Previous to the last board meeting, one of the supervisors brought up, because the 45 days had passed, to now bring it to the general committee, pull it out of what we did was put it on pause, pull it out of there, and bring it to the general committee. So when it came to the general committee for vote, it wasn't about Mahoney's qualifications. It was simply, should we put Mahoney back on to be considered and confirmed? And if it went back on, then that would be at a subsequent meeting to really have the debate on the floor if he was qualified or not. That vote did not pass. Many members, including three of the Black Caucus members, sit on PP&J. They had a lot of questions based back to some of his comments that he made when the Floyd tragedy happened in our country. Uh, there were some comments that he made that didn't really align with justice reform. Myself, my concerns were under his tenure, people that were brought in as residents of the jail that were dealing with substance use, they were not allowed to bring with them their medications to keep them clean and sober, so to speak. That did not change until he left that position and the current sheriff came in and now allows those medications to be in place. And then the biggest question really was, you know, if we're talking about reforming a system that's not working, so to speak, that's been you, you know, Mr. Mahoney has been in that position for 20 years. So I think the real question was like, if we're questioning what happened over those 20 years is, as being a rise in the need for criminal reform, why would we bring a law enforcement person in to head this, specifically someone that was, you know, at the helm of uh, an organization like law enforcement that was creating a lot of these challenges? You've expressed some frustration over past press coverage of Parisi's recommendation. Earlier in the summer, some reports made it seem like Mahoney's confirmation was a done deal. Can you tell me more about that? You know, when there's two bodies of people, like the executive's office almost acts on the federal level, we kind of understand what the president does. And we also understand the federal level what the Congress does. So we are kind of the Congress, just like the president puts forward someone to be a Supreme Court justice, it has to be confirmed by the House of Representatives. That is the due process in most county government. That is definitely the due process here in Dane County. So the public may not know that, but I want to make it clear that I think it's our responsibility, and I would love to join the press to make it known, you know, how does it work? Instead of just reporting, these are the things that happen, let's kind of really take a step backwards and say, these are why they happen. And I think when that unclarity is there, there's a lot of challenges between the executive's office and the board. Those challenges are going to be innate, just like they're at a federal level. But let's not exasperate that by not explaining the process. So specific to this situation, Faye, what happened was 
Priest's office put out a press release and said they were wanting to appoint him. I don't know the actual verbiage, but basically the press picked up on it. And I saw countless stories with Mr. Mahoney talking about being the temporary head and why it's important to him. And there were beautiful stories and truly from his heart of what he really believes in, you know, from what, what he's telling us. But the reality is on the bottom of most press releases, if not all of them, it says pending confirmation from the Dane County Board. The point is that so often it moves forward into this reality, and I think the public and the press pick up on this reality when it's signaled by the executive's office when that's not to be on an end all, which frankly puts us in a very uncomfortable position because then we have to often explain what really went on. And that's why I appreciate this opportunity, especially as the one who put forward, you know, the motion the way I did, which is a controversial motion. You know, some said I was calling them obstructionist, for instance, by a colleague that, that I greatly admired on the floor. From your perspective, what kind of candidate would be a better fit? At the table should be law enforcement, should be the DA's office, should be justices, should be judicial people, should be people with lived experience. But heading it, uh, I think it should be someone that's set back from that, that understands what criminal justice reform really looks like. All right. Thank you again for joining me. No, Faye, thank you so much for always being so kind to want to learn. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. The Wisconsin Supreme Court is currently considering changing state policy on eviction records. A tenant advocacy organization is asking the court to purge those records after a year. Currently, they can stay on file for two decades. This week on Transparency Talk, WORT contributor Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, examine the petition and what it means for transparency in the housing market. All right. It is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom how are you holding up this week? I'm good, Jonah, but I'm a little worried because you're you're holding your microphone in your hand like you're about to walk around on a stage. Yeah, I'm giving a, I'm actually giving a TED talk uh, shortly after this. It's going to be virtual. No, my boom stand broke. So now I have to hold my mic in my hand like an absolute pleb. I'll order a new one eventually. But, you know, I procrastinate naturally. Uh, hey, we got an interesting topic to talk about today. We're chatting about the Supreme Court. This is, uh, I think, the third episode in a row. We've talked about the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. The new justice, Janet Protasewicz, just got seated, and they have had a very tumultuous few uh, few first weeks here. The court was recently asked to tweak court policy rules when it comes to um, eviction records. This is something that might have, you know, people might not have noticed in the flurry of action that the court's been up to these past couple uh, weeks. So, Tom, tell me a little bit more about this rule petition. Now, let's start off here. Actually, let's lay the groundwork. What is a rule petition even? So the court doesn't just decide cases. They have to actually administratively oversee the whole court system. So Supreme Court makes rules governing this system, you know, ethics rules for judges and attorneys, behind the scenes rules for court operations and how procedure, how court cases proceed through the courts. Anybody can actually technically propose a rule change 
through a, a particular formal process. And when somebody petitions for one, if the court decides they want to hear more about it, then uh, the court holds a public hearing where people testify or uh, submit comments in writing. And then court deliberates and decides whether to adopt the petition or an adopt, adopt an amended version of it. And now uh, the, those administrative rule hearings are now happening happening publicly again, so we get to see those. Which is very nice. Always always fun to get a look behind the curtain at the Supreme Court. Now, help me understand what's the current status quo on eviction records. So part of the Supreme Court rules is there's a whole set of them about how long every kind of court record you could possibly imagine has to be kept. There's 11 pages in the rules about different court records. The large majority of them need to be kept for 20 years. Some of them are kept longer, so felonies, family cases. Some of them are shorter, though. Uh, traffic cases are only kept for, I think it was uh, four or seven years. Records of liens that are held on property aren't kept that long because those are also, uh, those can be lodged in the, your, your county registrars. And uh, financial records of the court itself are kept for, for seven years. After that, uh, after that retention period passes, any court can get rid of those records, but they first have to offer them to the Wisconsin Historical Society, which does have massive archives of very old records, but it's not everything. So if you thought that traffic violation just from 20 years ago just vanished, you're wrong. The Historical Society might have pay dirt on you. Um, yeah, and the, the eviction records are currently considered just part of normal small claims civil court records and are typically kept for 20 years. So talk to me a little bit more about this proposed change. So Legal Action of Wisconsin is proposing this, and they are a nonprofit group. They represent uh, low-income people for free. Uh, they do a lot of uh, tenant-landlord work, exclusively on the side of tenants, of course. And they have proposed that instead of 20 years, an eviction court case should disappear completely, not just from CCAP, but the records should be tossed from the courts after just one year or two in some circumstances uh, instead of 20 if there's not a money judgment. So if the case goes all the way through, the tenant fights it the whole time and the court rules that the tenant owes them money, then that would be kept the normal amount. So let's get the view from both sides here. Help me understand legal action of Wisconsin's argument for wanting to drop that uh, drop that retention period down so significantly. So they're arguing the whole thing is unfair. They say this information is, is used by landlords to deny applicants uh, who want to rent their properties. And that's certainly true, that, that landlords do consider that information. And Legal Action points out that if you look at all of the eviction cases that get brought, get filed in court, the vast majority of them, about 85 to 90 percent, don't end with a money judgment. Uh, they're just dismissed. Now, legal action kind of suggests that, well, what that really means is that in all these cases or in a lot of these cases, the tenant didn't actually do anything wrong and these cases shouldn't have been brought. But that's that's misleading. That's not what really happens in the real world. I've done some work for landlords when I was first starting as an attorney. And if a case is dismissed, that does not mean the tenant was right and the landlord was wrong. Most of these cases are dismissed either because the tenant pays the back rent and gets to stay, or the tenant just agrees that they'll vacate and they won't, and that the, the the landlord doesn't have to go through the whole rest of the process. And now, once the tenant agrees to do that, 
that's what the landlord really wants so that they can re-rent the apartment and start getting money for it again. They're not typically paying an attorney to go through the rest of the whole case to get a, a judgment of money for a few hundred or even a few thousand dollars that they're never going to collect. It's really, really hard for, uh, for them to actually ever get this money from the tenants who didn't pay their rent. Now, in our show notes here, you call legal actions argument the, quote, you can't handle the truth argument. Why, why do you say that, Tom? Yeah, it's, it's literally trying to hide government records. I mean, every other court case stays on there pretty much for a minimum of 20 years for virtually everything. And they're picking this one area and saying, well, we don't trust people with information. We don't trust the public with this government information. It needs to be vanished. And I see this all the time. Bothers me. Well, this is going to be an interesting topic to keep uh, your eye on as it proceeds through the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Before we sign off, that's typically where I would end the episode. Just a little bit of housekeeping here. This is actually my final episode uh, co-hosting Transparency Talks, starting with the next episode. Somebody else will be moving into this role. I recently moved to South Carolina to work for a newspaper out of Charleston, and it feels dishonest to uh, host a show about transparency when I'm living in South Carolina, doesn't seem very, very open to the listeners. Uh, so Tom, I just want to say, you know, I've, I've been a volunteer at war for about four years now. Well, volunteer, then assistant news director, back to volunteer after that role finished up. Uh, and it's been a real pleasure hosting this segment for, with you. I've, I've learned so much and uh, I've had a real great time. Jonah, this has been an absolute blast. I'm going to miss you a ton. I'm so thankful that you and WRT reached out to me right at the beginning of the of the transparency project's life to say hey i think we should not just have you on to talk about this new firm you're starting but you know maybe we can make this a a regular regular segment and i've never done anything like that before and it's been great i've loved working with you and i'm sure that wrt is gonna gonna find somebody else who's just as fun to uh <laughs> to be having these chats with yeah we want to keep the government transparency thing fun so I'm going to cut it there. I don't I don't like long goodbyes, but I want to say the outro line for this episode. I've never gotten to say it. Remember, folks, if you don't ask, you won't know. Summer is officially coming to a close and fall is on its way. In this week's edition of Fishy Business, Nate Wiggyhout and Pat Hasberg give us a rundown on fishing in the area. Alrighty, I am on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, fall is starting to actually feel like it's finally here. It's actually been a little bit chilly out in the mornings there. So how's the uh, fishing been lately? Fishing's been great. Uh, these cooler temps get the water temp coming down now, and that reminds the fish that we're you know, heading into win winter. It's not too far away anyway, so those fish start to get their fall feed bag on. They're you know, getting bulked up for winter, and uh, yeah, the bite's been great. Uh, bluegills have been uh, plentiful all around the chain. Walleyes, smallmouth, muskies have been turning on. So, yeah, it's a great time to be on the water. Fall is a wonderful time to be fishing. And I like it because that means that it's not too hot to actually be outside by the water. So I, I'm definitely a fall guy for sure. I put on my first flannel yesterday, first flannel for the season. So let's go down the list. Start off with Lake Mendota. What's been happening over there? Lake Mendota, the fishing's been great, uh, except for the perch, I should say. You know, perch is a very popular thing this time of year. It's just been tough all summer long. A lot of small fish out there, a lot, a lot of small fish. But uh, finding some that are uh, good enough to take home has been 
a bit of a challenge for most anglers out there. But the good news is that the bluegills have been filling uh, that role nicely. So weed lines pretty much anywhere around the lake. Not a lot of nice bluegills being picked up. The smallmouth bass and walleye bite has been great on outside weed edges and mid-lake humps. But I have started to hear about some fish starting to move in shallower as these water temps come down. Uh, and the pike bite out there has just been great all summer. And that's only going to get better as we go into fall here. And I wanted to ask, about what time of year do the fish start to come up shallow? I know it has to do with the water temperatures, but uh, about when can we expect them to really start moving away from the deeper parts of the lake there? Well, like you said, it it really is temperature dependent, uh, but, you know, definitely by October, you're going to see a lot of fish up shallower. A lot of shore anglers are going to have access to some good walleye action, both on Lake Mendota and Monona uh, from shore. And, uh, yeah, those fish are just, like I said, just trying to bulk up for winter. So they're chasing around schools of bait fish, and that's really the driver of that. So, you know, these the bait fish are looking for uh, warmer, the warmest water they can find, and a lot of times that's the shallow water, especially once we get uh, into some of the cooler months here. So, and the, and the walleyes and the game fish follow those bait fish right in, and, and they're accessible to everyone, really. All right, and moving down the list here, let's take a look at Lake Monona. What's happening over there? Well, Lake Monona has been... Uh, had a great uh, bluegill bite still going on out deep. So anywhere, you know, anywhere from 20 feet of water all the way out to 70 feet of water, uh, those fish are going to be found about 15 feet down. Uh, and there's big schools of them roaming around out there. So uh, some great opportunities to pick up some fish that way. Otherwise, uh, there's been a good bluegill bite down at the Monona Terrace Wall uh, and in the uh, Triangles in Brittingham Bay down there uh, near the capital. There's also a good crappie bite that's been happening off the Monona Terrace wall in the evenings. Uh, I haven't heard much in the way of walleye or bass off Lake Monona, but the muskie bite out there is starting to pick up too for the same reasons as all the other fish. You know, they're just getting ready for fall and starting to bulk up, and these cooler temps haven't been a good mood. And speaking of muskies, what's happening over on Lake Wingra? Well, Lake Winger is uh, pretty much the same as it always is. You're going to have a ton of tiny bluegills in there, so if you've got a young person you want to keep busy, it's a great spot for that. Otherwise, some real nice largemouth bass in there. And then, of course, the muskie action is uh, almost always good and, and is only going to get better as the water temps cool down. Not so much in the way of size structure on Lake Wingra, uh, but, you know, some very nice fish in that 30 to 40, even 40-plus 40 inch range. But none of the 50-inch jumbos that you might find out on uh, Lake Monona and, and even Wabisa. And if there's one thing that we can count on, it's consistency over in Lake Wingra. And uh, sort of going off of that, maybe the opposite of consistency. Let's take a look. Let's skip over to Lake Kiganza. What's happening over there? Well, yeah, Kiganza is just a feast or famine type situation, it seems like, over there. It's, and that's really the MO for that lake. Uh, but, yeah, I, there are some folks getting bluegills in the same areas out uh, 15 feet of water uh, or 15 feet down over deep water. I uh, have been hearing about a few walleyes being picked up near the state park, but uh, the action that was, you know, kind of hot and heavy there in the uh, late spring, early summer is, you know, kind of tapered off some. But, uh, yeah, like like you alluded to, it's it's really, you know, it can be a mystery, that lake. But uh, definitely a, a beautiful lake and, and a lot of great fish in there, for sure. And I skipped over it, but I definitely want to hit it, and that's uh, Lake Wabisa. Uh, what's happening over in that area? Well, there's been a great largemouth bass bite up shallow all summer long. Uh, topwater frogs working really well for those fish. Otherwise, a very nice bluegill bite going on down there, too, but the same as Monona and uh, Kiganza. 
it's been, uh, you know, anywhere you can find deeper water, 20 feet of water or more, uh, those fish are going to be about 15 feet down. Uh, they are picking up a few on weed lines, but most of those fish are suspended out over the deep water and, and some actually some really nice size bluegill on Wabisa, more so than uh, some of the other lakes. But, uh, and, you know, the musky bite down there is picking up too and, and great northern pike bite down there as well. But that's the standard for all over the chain. Just a lot of pike in the system right now. And with the weather cooling down here, I want to move over to trout fishing for a second. How, how has the trout bite been in the last few weeks? Trout bite's been fantastic. Um, it's hopper season, full on into hopper season right now. So any, any if, you know, on the fly fishing side of things, if you've got a, any any pattern that looks like a grasshopper or even if it just has some rubber legs on it looks anything anything looks kind of buggy and sits on top you're likely going to find fish i've been out a couple times this last week and had some fantastic fishing actually broke my personal best for numbers wise on, on fish and it's just lights out right now beautiful weather beautiful time to be out uh trout fishing uh you know if the, if the trout for some reason aren't looking up you know, you can find them with spinning gear in, in, in deep holes or even running a, a red worm just under a bobber is, is super effective for trout year-round. And, Pat, we are starting to run up against the clock here. So uh, just before you go, is there any final fishing advice that you want to give to the people out there, maybe for the, the fall season here? Well, like I mentioned earlier, fall is my favorite time to be out fishing, really. And it's it's funny that a lot of people don't enjoy fall fishing as much as I think they should, but uh, I would encourage everybody to get out and enjoy these last uh, warm, nice days while we got them because winter really is just around the corner. And that'll have to do it for today. Remember, you can hear an updated fishing report anytime that you want just by calling one simple, easy-to-remember number. That's 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thank you so much for talking with me again this week, and good luck out there. Yeah, same to you, Nate. Always a pleasure. It's 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Forward Madison FC has just six games left in the USL League One's regular season, four of which take place at home here in Madison. While the Flamingos have experienced a recent rough run of form, they look to start a hot streak tonight versus Richmond and go again next Wednesday against Northern Colorado at Bree Stevens Field. More now from Forward Focus. Hello again to everyone listening to WORT online at 89.9 FM on your radio dial. Welcome to another edition of Forward Focus, a segment devoted to any and all things Forward Madison FC, Wisconsin's only fully professional soccer team. I'm one of your hosts, Grant Peters, assistant editor for FMFC-themed publication New Dog Mazine. Joining me as always is the editor of NDZ and the producer of Forward Focus, Andrew Schmidt, along with the Director of Public Relations for Forward Madison FC, Evan Warwick. In our last segment, FMFC were in the middle of a month-long stretch where every match would be on the road, away from the friendly confines of Bree Stevens Field. The Goes had one last game on the road, a matchup down in Chattanooga, Tennessee, for a matchup against the Red Wolves, and then the Mingos would follow that up with a return home this past Saturday in a rematch against one Knoxville SC 
a club nipping at their heels in a battle for playoff positioning. With a recap of the action and what transpired on the pitch, Evan, take it away. The end of August's busy schedule came to an end for Ford Madison, with matchups against the Chattanooga Red Wolves on the road and one Knoxville SC at home. The Mingos came into the Chattanooga matchup a bit banged up and rough for wear after a long run of away trips in the month of August. The scoring got started early in the eighth minute for the Flamingos when Derek Gebhardt fired a shot into the net to put the pink and blue up one early. From there on out, the match was all Red Wolves. Three unanswered goals would prove to be enough to defeat Ford Madison 3-1, dropping the Mingos into sixth place just above the USL League One playoff line. FMFC returned home this past Saturday, September 9th, from massive tilt with seventh place Team 1 Knoxville SC. In a match with major playoff implications, the Mingos came out with a point to prove. After an initial spell of high pressing and energy, the match leveled out and the teams went into the break dead even at 0-0. An early second yellow card and subsequent red card was shown to Derek Waldeck of 1 Knoxville in the second half, giving the Flamingos a man advantage for the remainder of the match. While FMFC was able to control possession and create some attacking chances, they were unable to find the back of the net. Two unfortunate red cards were issued to Ford Madison in the 11 minutes of stoppage time, and the match ended 0-0, with both clubs picking up a point along the way. That point has helped Ford Madison jump into fifth place in the USL League One standings as we now enter the last complete month of regular season play. Ford Madison will look to get back to their winning ways tonight at 7 p.m. in Madison against the Richmond Kickers. We talked to FMFC head coach and technical director Matt Glazer after the Knoxville game this past Saturday night. While many fans and players were visibly frustrated after the match, Glazer took note of a return to defensive solidity. Um, well, look, I mean, at the end of the day, got a shutout and got back uh, to our defensive structure and stability that we've had for a majority of the season up through, up in, apart from the last three games. So I was glad to see us put a zero up uh, on the defensive side of the ball. I don't think we touched the offensive side of the ball until uh, a day or two before the game. So we train, we spent a lot of the training week working on our defending, individual and collective set-piece defending. Uh, I thought the guys uh, executed on, on that side of the ball really well tonight. And now it's just uh, down to us being a little bit better, a little bit more composed on the ball and, um, and, and then tucking some of these chances Away. We asked Matt how the team was coping physically and mentally going into the Richmond game Thursday night, especially with the recent run of games and the away game travel playing in the heat and humidity of California, Georgia, and Tennessee. We'll try to get, get everyone fit and healthy for the game. Uh, and then, yeah, it's a, re- a recovery day tomorrow. In for training on Monday, we're back to work. The group's, uh, the group's hungry. They're, they're frustrated. Um, and I think we're, we're excited to play Richmond. A quick turnaround on Thursday. There's peaks and valleys any time in the season. And we want to get hot at this moment. This is the, this is the moment to, to try and get hot, carry this into, into hopefully the playoffs. And, and, uh, but I think the guys know. I think the guys are hungry for it. It's been our goal since February to, to get in the playoffs. The guys are motivated. They work hard. Our training week this week was one of our best of the season. So I, I honestly feel really confident and, and, and happy with the group. And I, lo- I love this group so much. It's, it's one of my favorite groups that I've ever worked with. Um, they're passionate. You know, maybe we, need to, maybe we need to be a little bit more composed at times. Um, but but uh, overall, like I think we've had some harsh decisions go against us, and I think the group's there for it, right reasons. Good good group of guys. Um, I'm 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 happy overall. We caught up with former Richmond kicker, now Flamingo, Stephen Payne, before the kickers visit Bree Stevens on Thursday night. We asked Stephen about the recent slump in results 
how the team will cope versus Richmond without Kristen Chaney and Mauro Sichero in the lineup due to red cards, and how important Madison's fan support will be in the run-up to the playoffs. Every team goes through a rough patch, uh, and tonight we, we definitely if we fought through that. Back line, we feel strong again, the whole team, everyone defending, everyone attacking. Um, so we got back to our roots, and I think uh, we feel good going forward. We have full trust in everyone in the team. Um, we signed uh, Ozzy. We have other guys in the in the bench and in the in the locker room that can step up. So everybody's gotta gotta be ready for their name to be called upon when this happens. So we know the team we have, we know the potential that we have. Um, so now we just gotta we gotta put it together. Uh, it's that time of the season. It's the grind time. So we just gotta put results together, start winning games, and uh, everything will, will will work out. The support we had tonight was unreal. We're going to need that every single game. We need the guys to come out, everyone to, to support. Um, and we got to put the performances for them when they when they come out and get three points the next time. Fellow wingback and former USL League One champion Jake Krull reiterated his teammates' sentiments about the fan support in Madison, again illustrating its importance to the players in this final stretch of the season. Yeah, I think this will be big for us. I think it will allow us to get in a rhythm. The fans are, have been unbelievable. Uh, the noise that you guys produce for us on the field um, is uh, wind in our sails. So I think that that's going to be a big piece of it. Hopefully we'll be able to get a rhythm um, on our home field and um, get you guys behind us as you guys always are. And uh, hopefully that that'll just build momentum going into playoff and we'll be able to get on a good run and good form going into playoffs. The Flamingos are back in action again at home tonight against their rivals from out east, Richmond Kickers. Forward Madison has already secured the coveted Henny Derby trophy with two previous wins, but has a chance to do something neither team has done so far against each other in five years, and that's pull off the season sweep. Kickoff is at 7 p.m. Central. FMFC will follow that up with another home match next Wednesday, September 20th, against the high-scoring Northern Colorado Hailstorm FC. Kickoff for that match will be 7 p.m. local time as well. For WORT, this has been Ford Focus. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Sarah Gabler and Faye Parks. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenik, Pat Hansberg, and the Ford Focus crew. Nicole Alley engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slate. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Don't forget to subscribe to the local news as a podcast. Up next is a perpetual notion machine. Thanks for listening and good night.